0: Hello and welcome to The Critic Podcast. We're doing a one-off special speaking to Steve Baker MP on the news that he's stepping down from his role as chairman of the European Research Group. Steve's political hero is Richard Cobden, who along with John Bright founded the Anti-Corn Law League and from the backbenches forced the government to drop tariffs on food imports in 1846, which benefited both manufacturers and made food much cheaper for the poorest in society. We're yet to see the last chapter of the Brexit story, but over the last few years, Steve Baker and his band of Eurosceptics, largely from the backbenches, have dramatically punctured the political career of a Prime Minister and ended her time in politics. They've shifted the number one policy of the day and created the conditions for the largest Tory majority since Margaret Thatcher. So Steve, I guess it's job done. (laughs) Well, I think
1: at this stage, for me, um, with the European Research Group, my job as chairman of the European Research Group is done. But obviously, until we've concluded the right set of relationships with Europe, with the USA, with Japan, Australia, New Zealand, the jobs, uh, we're not into the new phase, at least, let's put it that way. But yeah, from my point of view, leading Eurosceptics or serving them in this way
0: uh, is done, yes. And just reflecting on your few years leading the European Research Group, has it been an easy No, it's been horrible.
1: Um, We've had to do some things which we really found uncomfortable and which we did not want to do. I always remember standing there with Jacob in front of the TV cameras saying that it was time to change Prime Ministers and that was a horrible, horrible thing to have to do. And it came after a long period of saying saying and meaning that we wanted to change the policy, not the person. Um, David Davis, Boris Johnson and I had all resigned over checkers. Boris named the campaign Chuck Checkers." And that's what we wanted to do, chuck checkers. Um, but it was an appalling thing to have to go out in front of the cameras calling for your own Prime Minister to, to, to go. So, yeah, the, we've had to do lots of things which weren't any fun. Of course, we've been condemned by all sides at the time of Meaningful Vote 3. You know, lots of Eurosceptics were telling us to take the deal, saying we were useful idiots throwing away Brexit, and it turns out they, they were they were wrong. But yeah, so we've had to do some some pretty tough things. I think we knew all the way along what the what the burden was of decision. I think we understood what was at stake. That if if the Chequers deal had gone through or something worse with Labour support, that would have fragmented the Conservative Party. And it would have led to Conservative MPs joining in with Nigel Farage to say this isn't a Brexit worth having. And that would have been an unstoppable force. And it's inconceivable that we could have won an election in that context so we knew that checkers did have to be stopped and um, well the rest really is history now but it was pretty tough.
2: How much did you fear that the Labour Party would vote for meaningful votes one, two or three in order to almost permanently split the Conservative Party and, and boast UKIP for its Brexit Party successor?
1: I never really thought that uh, the Labour Party would vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal. I think the Labour Party's got two, had two driving forces in conflict with one another, perhaps. One was their need for Brexit to be a failure and for them to come to power saying, there we go, the Tories have failed, because that's an enormous price for them to, to try and show some generational scale failure of the Conservative Party. And the other factor is um, they want to be in the European Union. So I, I didn't really see them voting for the exit deal under any circumstances. And I think by the time you fast forward to the attempts to get a meaningful vote for, you could see that they, they weren't really interested in doing a deal. Jeremy Corbyn's a Eurosceptic apart from anything
2: else. And uh, t- chairing the ERG, is, is it a classic, has it been a classic case of herding cats? Or how would you describe the unity of purpose uh, of, of, of the group?
1: Organising the Eurosceptics has been herding tigers. It's not herding cats, because cats don't hurt quite so much as tigers do. They're they're tough tough people to organise, and I did it for Conservatives for Britain from 2015. Uh, Then after the referendum, when I was first asked to chair the ERG, the objective there was to unite the party. We had people from all wings of opinion of the Conservative Party involved. We appointed two vice-chairs who'd voted remain, Charlie Elphick and John Penrose. If people forget that at that time, the purpose of the ERG was to bring people together and to research ideas, to work with people like the then the Garton Institute Special Trade Commission, to bring really top quality ideas in for how we would deliver the right trade policy. Um, but it's it's always been interesting, but it, it, it is a challenge. You know, uh, I've always had an eye to the unity of the party since that 2015 Conservatives for Britain uh, effort. But how I would describe it is... Um, a huge privilege to humbly serve greater colleagues than myself, and I do think that, you know, the idea that I should find myself chairing something which supports Sir William Cash, you know, he's an amazing, an amazing man who's worked his whole life for this, so I consider it my privilege to serve my colleagues in this way, Uh, but it is it's a hard thing to do, (laughs) there's so many schisms of opinion in Euroscepticism, uh, so many rivalries that are generational, um, yeah so it's been an enormous privilege and an enormous challenge i certainly feel capable of chairing just about any meeting now to a successful conclusion um but uh, it's definitely time for me to move my life on mm-hmm. I, I i represent a remain leaning thames Var- valley seat uh where i lost two thousand votes exactly at this election the lib dems gained a bit more than that i think i gained some uh leavers from labour and uh it, it, it's not very tenable for me to continue being one of the foremost voices as we leave the EU when that is the balance of opinion in my seat.
2: And so you've announced today you're standing down as chairman, but will you stay active on the committee or within the councils of the ERG more broadly? Or are you yeah. really keen to get the deck chair out?
1: Oh, I, I will continue to be a subscribing member mm. and uh, I can't imagine I'll be invited to to stop attending the steering group so I shall go to the steering group and uh, I shall go to all the meetings uh, but I I don't propose to uh, uh, do much media in fact I've I when I've done media it's tended to go ramp quite widely but I've turned down so much media over the course of the last 18 months but I don't propose to do very much more media uh, about about brexit is there anyone that you think would make a good successor well, the tradition seems to have been that the deputy chairman becomes the chairman and I think Mark Francois uh, would be an excellent chairman. Um, in the course of the last 18 months, the three people who've really done more day by day to determine what exactly we did and how we did it were in various combinations, Jacob Rees-Mogg, myself and Mark Francois. And, and I think the right decision is for Mark to take the chair um, perhaps david jones as a former brexit minister to become deputy chair but but i have to say this is a matter for the officers to decide and indeed the members were it to come to an election but i don't think it will but you, usually the officers sort, sort it out
0: a lot of people i've spoken to you've said um that your organisation skills during the last few years have been really crucial and you've had so many whatsapp groups and lists that you've yeah. been endlessly uh, coordinating people and actioning things um do you think if Boris Johnson does diverge from his Brexit policy, and do you think well, things are going wrong, um, you know when you see that bat signal in the sky, are you, are you ever tempted to you know come back to the rescue?
1: Well, that's a very very large hypothetical, and if I may, I'll answer why I think it's hypothetical in a second. But um, <laughs> I suppose I really would reluctantly. Uh, allow myself to be drawn back into serving my colleagues but it's such a huge hypothetical cause I, and partly because I really don't think it's going to happen. As I mentioned earlier Boris Johnson resigned rather than accept Chequers partly on the advice of David Frost, his now lead negotiator. He really did not want the Chequers plan because of what it meant for our, for being a rule taker and he and I and David Davis resigned because we, we meant to stop that way of leaving the EU. So the idea that Boris Johnson would now choose mm-hmm a kind of level playing field commitment that led, to, led us to being a rule taker, That that that's pretty far-fetched, I think. So he doesn't want to let us down. And the other fact is, I, I really think that Boris has a very, very acute sense of where his new MPs are coming from. You know, we won these seats, in a sense, really contingently. He says it explicitly. We, they've loaned us their votes. They wanted to get Brexit done. We've How many times did we all hear it and say it? People wanted to get Brexit done. So if we were to get into a position where Nigel Farage, who's inevitably he'd be there, was saying this is not a Brexit worth having, and he was joined for the sake of argument by 28 Conservative MPs saying this is a Brexit not worth having, and they were all out vocal in the media, how, the, how would the Conservative Party survive the subsequent general election whenever it came, if the Tory party had split like that, and a large number of, a material number of Conservative MPs ended up agreeing with Nigel Farage that it wasn't Brexit. So I just don't see that happening, because the politics of that are too awful. And I think it's very easy to forecast that that is what would happen if Boris, for example, allowed state aid to apply in the UK under the jurisdiction of the ECJ, um, and agreed to dynamically align on social chapter material which we previously as a party rejected I mean if worried to do something like that it's, it's very easy to see how that would just be completely untenable so I think for those two reasons Boris is to be trusted on do, doing this right he doesn't need me to hold my hold his feet to the fire on this and um, I, I really don't see me returning to this uh, role of um, orchestrating events <laughs> that's what I've turned out to be quite good at um, I don't see it happening hmm.
2: What will be your concerns uh, beyond a trade deal with the eu and other countries what would be your main concerns about this what we'll call the, the first johnson administration
1: it's always spending so i mean the, the the three the three uh things that that really got me into politics were the lisbon treaty concerns about economic policy and monetary and fiscal policy and just a general sense that MPs were doing it wrong so I should do it myself. With Boris he's got a great deal of pressure to spend a great deal of money and an argument I have made time and again through my 10 years now in Parliament is that we are in a profound crisis of political economy, a really profound crisis right across the developed world and it's a crisis which was most obviously manifest during the financial crisis because the banking system very nearly collapsed but if you look at it, look at the causes of that crisis. Is it because government was too small, taxes were too low, we'd run surpluses too often, um, and money was too sound? Well, to ask the question in that way is, of course, to answer it, because since the since the Second World War, government spending uh, uh, has been out or beyond the limits of taxation. Taxes have been correspondingly very high. We've overwhelmingly uh, run uh, deficits, not surpluses. We've managed it briefly, briefly twice. Um, And, of course, monetary policy has been hugely expansionary. If you look at the quantity of money outstanding, you find, for example, that it tripled between 1997 and 2010. So, you know, the traditional economic policy of the Conservative Party, limited government, low taxes, balanced budgets, sound money, that has not characterised the post-war period. So if we are in a profound crisis of political economy, it can't be because classical liberal ideas have failed it will be because we're in a crisis of what I would call social democracy. I call it a second crisis of socialism. So these ideas I'm afraid are very big and this is the the material I want to be talking about now. For the whole of my lifetime, really for a hundred years, politicians have continually made promises that they, they could only ultimately fund by debasing the currency. This is why the Bretton Woods system collapsed. It's why we've ended up with this sort of non-system of floating fiat monies back by nothing. Um, You know, the Governor of the Bank of England and his colleagues came to the Treasury Committee and I asked them to summarise what the the Governor had said at his Jackson Hole speech in 2019. And it was that the current monetary system will end, that it will go on longer than anyone thinks possible and then end faster than anyone realised it could. It's not verbatim, but people will find it in the transcript. Well, that's extraordinary. That's the case I've been making for ten years. Now the governor's argument is different from my argument, but it's quite something that I sit here today, we've both both having played my part in leaving the EU, and the other issue I wish to address was that we needed to shift the chain shift the terrain of debate about monetary policy. Well, it's certainly shifted. And I certainly know that I've spoken about it often. I don't think the governor made his speech for my sake, um, but he and I have certainly discussed it. But um, I don't think it's really understood what this means for our society. So to bring all this abstract and historical stuff to focus here today, we have a prime minister who clearly intends to quite dramatically increase spending. Well, in, in a sense, the human side of me thinks what a relief. Because 10 years of voting for austerity and defending it and seeing the consequences of it is quite painful, painful, difficult. So to spend more money in a sense is a relief, except the, (laughs) the classical liberal in me, the person who cares about the longer term welfare of humanity, thinks unfortunately we might be about to see a Conservative government quite dramatically undermine one of the main pillars of our credibility, One of the main features of difference between us and the other side is that we've traditionally believed in limited government, lower taxes, balanced budgets, sound money, and we might be about to embrace the opposite of all of those things, and in doing so, stoke the very causes of the profound crisis of political economy which I believe is afflicting the world. So I've sort of brain-dumped that. I hope that's sufficiently cogent for your listeners. If people are interested in the data, it's available on my YouTube channel, where uh, it's about a seven-minute video which, which which goes through the data. But I'm really worried. I'm really worried we're going to have another major financial crisis, and we won't know what to do. Last time, we solved a crisis of too much easy money by having QE, explicitly creating it, instead of creating it through cheap cheap credit. Well, in fact, we did both, both cheap credit and direct QE. And should the financial system collapse again, which I expect it to, um, we, we will be really out of ideas. You'd have to engage in absolutely massive QE. Uh, and there's an old saying that you can continue to debase the currency all the time that people believe you will stop.
2: I think we have to leave that thought hanging. Um, Steve Baker announcing your uh, retirement as chairman of the <laughs> erg today but with many new dragons to slay hovering on the horizon i
1: have to say there's a spring in my step i'm excited about going on to do other different things but i'm optimistic that we will solve the problems that lie before us People are incredibly inventive and ingenious and they know in their souls, for want of a better term, what is the right thing to do. And the British public are not fools. They are not going to choose socialism. But I think it is important that some of us are pointing out that what's going wrong in the world is socialism. So let's sort it out. Let's choose freedom.
2: Steve Baker, on
1: that optimistic note,
2: we leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, but why not get The Critic in print? Right now we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details.